Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. Is it possible to make your voice heard around important issues of our day, like healthcare, water resource management, and climate resiliency? Our guest today, Susan Lael, has done just that, and it's taken her into government offices and executive boardrooms across the United States. Susan studied economics and law and then became an attorney for the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee's Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. She then came back to California to work in both the public and private sectors. She founded and ran a healthcare company. She was both appointed and elected to government positions for the city and county of San Francisco, and she's been a consultant. She's also been a research associate at Harvard and co-wrote the book, Running Out of Water. Susan is currently the principal at Urban Waterworks, a consulting firm based in San Francisco. In our conversation, Susan connects the dots between the many curvy moves she's made. Welcome, Susan. Glad to be here. So Susan, your work today focuses on helping public and private utilities, agencies, and corporations identify creative solutions to water-related challenges. And your ultimate goal is to promote climate resiliency and sustainability. So this is really important work. I'd like to talk about how you got here. So how you built your career, the steps you took, the challenges you faced, and what you learned about yourself along the way. Mm. So let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your childhood and how this influenced your career. Uh, Born and raised in San Francisco which um, is an exciting place to grow up. was given a lot of, in many ways, a lot of freedom. In other ways, parents who really stressed education. Neither one of my parents had completed high school. So it was a big thing. School was a big deal. So you got strong messages from your parents about education. Absolutely. Did you also get strong messages about what type of work you should be doing or what work should be in your life? It was more about supporting yourself. There was no stress about, oh, you'll you'll get married and you'll be taken care of. It was more about, we're, we're very lucky to be in the United States and it's a great country. There's all this opportunity here. Make sure you take advantage of it. Did that message cause you to get any early jobs? Uh, just before I finished high school, I went to go work for the phone company as an operator. And I met a lot of wonderful women. They're all women. That gave me a message which was, unless I wanted to be doing that for 30 years, I better go to college and do well. So tell me what you studied. So end up at, at graduating from Berkeley, which was a crazy experience. Uh, decided to do economics because, the, again, I, I hear my parents' voice when I'm picking that major. I really loved art history, but economics was more uh, steady. Practical, steady. So that was the, that's where what drove me to that. But I enjoyed it and it was fun. And then I know you went to law school. Did you go straight from undergrad to law school or did you work no, in I between? No, took, I took off a year. I worked 
So I didn't really take off a year to year from school. And I worked for a little bit. And it was more odd jobs kind of thing. Um, I had worked when I was in uh, school. I worked a lot, um, many summers and during the year for E.F. Hutton. Remember that? I old, do. When E.F. Hutton it, speaks, right, people listen, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And I worked for them and I really enjoyed it. And uh, so it, it was very different. You know, you there you were at one point you were a hippie and then the other side of you is you're in the, a brokerage firm. So it was it was an interesting contrast. Right. So, yes, I took a year off uh, from school. And then, what made you decide to go to law school? Well, I realized I couldn't. There was two things. One, I realized I couldn't go very far with an undergraduate degree, even back then. Hmm. And so then who didn't like Perry Mason growing up, okay? So it was that and and my visions of, of being a Perry Mason. So you finished law school. Yes. And what's tell me about the job. What did you do well, for a job afterwards? Well, I did take a I did take a very short stint, less than a year right after law school. Uh, it was with a, a, a corporate counsel. Lovely people. But I knew it was just not driving me, motivating me. So I had been assigned in this corporate council to an office near Washington on a stint, and I thought that would motivate me more. But instead, I met up with a lot of former colleagues who were working in uh, around the Hill or in government agencies. And I got an opportunity to go work for an investigations committee of the uh, House um, Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee. And uh, it, that was really exciting. What was it that you were hearing in that opportunity? If you well, could... it was it was going to be less money, so that wasn't thrilling. But I, I met s- some people that really seemed excited about what they were doing. And first, when I got there, I was the new kid. They had um, no women. They had one woman who was like an office manager. And then they had someone that was sort of like a part-time lawyer, but mainly you worked in a big war room with a bunch of guys that used a bunch of terms for me lovingly, as I found when we got to know each other, which today there's no way they would have gotten away with half the nicknames they gave me. Uh, but I've still remained friends with several of the guys. I don't see them as often as I'd like, but they were very cool people. So you mentioned before that your parents had said to you, take advantage of the opportunities that are that are here. Right. And you're at a corporate job that was paying more, as right. you just said. Was it hard for your parents to accept that you were taking a job that was going to be less money? And if so, how did you broach this and handle it this? It wasn't an easy phone call. I called my mother and I told her. Um, my father had... Uh, had, was very hard of hearing, so I didn't call him and tell him. But I told my mother. You let her do that piece. Of no, work. no, no. She was much tougher than he was. So, but you know, it's it probably would have been easier to call him because he would have said, "Oh, honey, do what you, do what you want, do what you want." And uh, my mother, oof, she was not happy. She knew I was getting paid good money. She knew that this company. I think there were still defined benefit plans. So for her, it was like, wow, what are you doing? So what made you stick with your decision and move forward with this anyway, even though you weren't at that point having the approval of your mother? Uh, because I knew I had to motivate myself to go to work every day. And if I was dreading going there, 
uh, I knew it wouldn't do well. Right. And I wanted to do well. So you move then into the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee's Subcommittee on oh, Oversight and Investigation. Yes, you said it right. I mangled it before. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you mangled it because right. I, I, I'm reading it and I'm, and I'm mangling to... it. And you were there for six years. Yes. You just mentioned that it was really important to keep yourself motivated. When you're in a role for an extended time like that, how do you keep the job interesting and how do you keep yourself motivated? Oh, my goodness. There was, it was hard not to be motivated in that position. When I, you got to the point where you were actually doing an investigation and then you would see some of your colleagues conduct an investigation and then be at a hearing and watch them in the first hearings, it was, it was really quite heady. You'd be 26 years old. You were sitting next to the chairman of the committee. You'd have someone in front of you who was subpoenaed to come to the committee. And you got to ask the questions after the chairman. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And we did some very cool investigations that were, I thought were really, we were really fighting for the people, fighting for right things. Um, And this was the late 70s, early 80s? Yes. And, And I got, first I started out in the energy group. They were looking at oil and gas issues. But then I got put into the healthcare thing, and that was sort of crazy how I got there. Tell me about that. Well, someone had to serve subpoenas on hospitals in Queens in August. Who do you think they're going to pick? They're going to pick the new little kid. Also because you were a woman? Well, I was, the, I was in, I had no health care background. You, I was a young lawyer. And I so, just didn't know if there was maybe the stereotype of healthcare equals nurse equals woman, no, therefore no, 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 that no, type no, of no, nurturing. No, there was a there was an epidemiologist on staff. He was a doctor in epidemiology. There was a, a White House fellow on the staff. He was a physician. There was another lawyer that worked with them. But who was going to serve subpoenas in Queens in August? Okay, that's oh right. yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh okay, I think. We sometimes think um, of the importance of paying our dues. And so doing something like that because we're going to pay our dues. Do you think that's still important today? Well, not only, yes, pay our dues, show that you're a team member, um, you're willing to contribute. Um, it, it, was, it was tough serving those subpoenas because we got a lot of pushback. I had to stand at my full 5'4 or 5'5, five, five, if, if I lie about it, but and and <laughs> – say, no, this subpoena says forthwith. So I'm going to sit in the lobby and I've brought a physician with me who will review the documents. So I'll sit in the lobby and wait for the documents to be pulled. So that was that was kind of cool. Did but, you know that you had that gumption and that perseverance or was it a skill you needed to develop in, in this moment to do this job? Oh, I think I, I knew I could do it. So it was actually even a comfortable place for you to be. It's never comfortable to stand up to people that have much more power. And the worst feeling was is that you'd go in there and, and people would say, oh, I'm sorry, we're, you're going to have to talk to our lawyers. And, and, in fact, they got their lawyers quickly on the phone in any of these types of deals. But uh, um, you just, I knew I could do it. But it, but it is still – it's still a little scary. So you were doing health care as part of your government position. And then – decided to move to the state assembly 
and come to California. Tell me about the transition from working from the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee to moving to California to join the state assembly here. Why did you make that move? There was, I would say, the biggest driver in it is that um, um, my mom had had uh, had uh, heart trouble, and I wanted to be closer to home. Uh, she ended up living to be 90, which was fabulous. But she was in her early 60s and was starting to have uh, significant heart trouble. And I decided I wanted to be closer to home. And then also, after you work on the Hill for four or five years, I didn't be, want to be someone who was there for 30 years. Because I think you, you, start, you, you risk losing the freshness and the intensity. Yeah, uh, so it because, sounds like you're saying like that you have to recognize that there's a point that it's an inflection point of you're now going to be a lifer right. or you're going to be more versatile. Right. And now is the time to be making that decision. Right. And so those two things together. Yeah, and this was an opportunity to take some of the things. We also not only did investigation, but we did some legislation as well. And it was to take some of those things back to California. So it was very lucky for me to be connected up with somebody in the state assembly, ended up working for the uh, Ways and Means uh, Committee, and then the subcommittee on healthcare, which meant I put together the healthcare budget for the state of California and the, or the assembly side. And uh, one of the provisions we put in at the, at the federal level uh, was one that I wanted to see that, this, that the state would adopt. And it, it, it did. What was that provision? It's a provision that I think changed health care. And that was the prudent buyer provision, which allowed states to apply for a waiver and to negotiate for their Medi-Cal or not Medicaid, or as we call it in California, your Medi-Cal recipients with hospitals and doctors. And that's something that's in existence still today. That's, so that's you've got some legacy. That's, that, that's the PPO that we all... The first PPO in California was not Blue Cross, was not Blue Shield, was not United Healthcare. It was Medi-Cal. I took a break when I was at the assembly to go work for the governor's office, Jerry Brown, first, first time around. He set up an office of healthcare negotiation, and we were able to take that provision, and uh, they were they wanted to cut the budget by a billion dollars for Medi-Cal recipients. And we said, maybe we could do that if we were able to lower the hospital cost. And we and we did. So I thought it was kind of cool. It's very cool. To do that kind of work, I would imagine you have to be quite passionate about health care. How did you discover that that was a passion of yours? Was it just that you fell into it during the job in Washington, or was there... Yeah, I fell into it. Number one, I fell into it. And then I realized, I think we all know how important healthcare is. But when you are there with uh, physicians reviewing issues of unnecessary surgeries, and you start looking at what we allow done to people for money... And how much we charge people. You know, I remember one one investigation we looked at is the one on infant formulas, where the infant formula company forgot to put in salt and what that did to children's brains. 
or a case where you get charged $5 for a slice of bread in a hospital and what that means. Or you do a surgery on somebody because you just do surgeries. So you do four tonsillectomies because there's four kids in the family. I mean, stuff like that. Right, and you're right. like going, wait a minute. Yeah, and it's an income source, not because there's a medical need for a tonsillectomy. Right, and you're like going, what? Yeah, yeah. And so it was that sort of thing. So you become, how could you not become passionate about that? Great. Well, I guess some people could be, but I was. But it really becomes that human interest side. There's a right. human involved in this. This isn't just a business right. and business decisions. There are real right. humans and real human lives, right. and this stuff matters. Right, right. So I want to touch on how you got the job at the at the state assembly. You you skimmed over it pretty quickly, but it sounded like you got that because of a connection. You said that you had met somebody. Is have have connections played an important role? Well, there's two things. There's career? connections. There's people will open a door or a window. I think the thing I can probably pat myself on the back for anything in life. Is it people have opened a door and a window and sometimes go, well, I don't know. But I often have walked through it. People say, oh, you worked really hard. And I said, yeah, I'm also real lucky. So you spend a couple of years doing state assembly and then left government work and went into enterprise. Tell me about that Well, part of it was that that group of people that did that first health care negotiation, we said, let's take this to private employers. Let's take this to uh, union trust funds. I was the first, fourth person to join the company. We'd worked in this healthcare negotiation unit for the governor. And then we formed this company about a year later. And it was very, uh, it was a natural progression. And so you did that for about, about nine years? Yes. And what, what made you decide to step away from that? One, I was fortunate that the company was, was bought by a publicly traded company. We had a decision to make. We expanded the company from, from well, four of us to uh, a couple hundred people. And then we it started to get a national presence. And then the, the logical thing was either we become publicly traded or we merge with a publicly traded company. And we merged with a publicly traded company. So the nature of the company started to change. And also I was traveling. I was traveling three weeks out of four. The guy who was the, the 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 original founder, he used to have this recurring nightmare, which was, I would say, yeah, I'll see you in Washington. And then he'd wake up and he'd think, was that Seattle? Because we had business in Seattle. Or was it in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> and it, it really was crazy. And so I, I just said, I got to take a break. So in that sense, the timing of the decision to sell was was personally even perfect. Of time, yeah, to take we were starting. We were crazy. starting to get yes, we were starting to get our options and all that kind of wonderful stuff. And I thought, okay, I've got a little bit of change. I can take a break. So as you were taking the break, did you do some self reflection there and really say, what is it that I want to do next? You're shaking your head, no. No, I went to the gym a lot. You know, when you're traveling three weeks out of four, there's two things happen. You get upgraded to first class all the time, and you eat and drink, and you're tired. So you have a cocktail, and you eat. And it's and I wasn't 
it was thinner then than I am now. But I mean, it was still because I was you young. Taking care of yourself, but I wasn't taking care of myself. So yeah. I just said, okay, I'm going to get myself in shape. I'm going to feel good. And then this friend of a friend, guy I'd met at Berkeley two million years ago, he said to this close friend of mine, "Hey, would Susan be interested in going on the board of supervisors?" And I'm like, going, hmm. Well, I love the city. Um. Why wouldn't I want to do something for the city? And so we met with people, and I got appointed by somebody I didn't even support. Um, I I didn't support this uh, Frank Jordan for election, and supported his opponent. But and he was the mayor of San Francisco mm-hmm. at the time, and he appointed me, and I was like, oh, okay. And the, for those who aren't from San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors is the equivalent of, say, a city council. A city in- council. It's a city it, because San Francisco is a city and a county. Like, say, L.A. will have a city council as well as a county board of supervisors. San Francisco, it's the same body. So we combine it into uh, the Board of Supervisors, which is 11 members, uh, a crazy group, uh, never a dull moment, uh, uh, wacky, but fun. So it's interesting because I think somebody reading your profile would say, well, clearly she was driven by government and and was probably even looking to be in government all along, starting in Mm -hmm. Washington and then working in the state government Mm -hmm. and now even went to local, probably now to build her own career as a politician. But that's not what I'm hearing was your your major drive. No, it was – I love the city and I thought, okay, well, yeah, I probably could – I could do a good job at this. I've got a brain. And I remember when I was sworn in, my father kept wandering around and people would walk up to him and, and say, oh, congratulations. And my father's consistent response to almost everyone was, you know, she used to have a good job. Now she's on the board of supervisors. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Uh, and so talk to me about your, your time in city and county government. What was that experience like for you? What were you learning about yourself? How did you grow as an individual? It was like drinking out of a fire hose because every day something else comes at you. Well, also, we were citywide, so that was pretty exciting. Um, probably the toughest time was when um, the mayor who appointed me vetoed a piece of legislation, the board of taking a position against Proposition 187, which was a, a piece of legislation which would have allowed, in fact, required schools and healthcare uh, providers to ask about the immigration status. I thought that was so appalling. I was probably a moderate to left a leaning member. And one of the more moderate members of the board was also a Chinese American. And uh, so uh, the, the Chinese American supervisor and this Mexican American supervisor, we... Which was you. Yes, we, yeah. we, we, we led this legislation. And, of course, the whole board joined us because they felt it was the right thing. And then the mayor called me in and said, I'm going to veto this. Called the other supervisor, Shea was his name. Called him in and said, I'm going to veto it. And then Tom and I uh, caucused afterwards. And we both said, no, we got to do this. And we led to his fir- the mayor's, the mayor that appointed me, his first veto override was on this. So that was kind of that was kind of crazy. And then I was I went on to the budget committee, chaired the budget committee, and that was very fascinating, of course. 
So um, you did five years on the board of supervisors and then ran for election as treasurer. Right. After five years on the board, um, the board was switching. Two things were happening. The board was switching to uh, district. And the district I lived in, I did very, very strongly. So it wasn't an issue of like, oh, I wouldn't get reelected to my district. But I also liked working in other districts. And I didn't want to be limited that way. And then an opportunity, the, the, the current treasurer, city uh, treasurer, city and county treasurer, was retiring. And I went down and met with her and said, will you support me? And she said, yes. So I ran for her position. And then how many years were you treasurer? Um, gosh, uh, was elected twice, um, I guess about seven, seven years, yeah. yeah. And the previous person you just said uh, was in the position until retirement. Why was that not your goal? Or maybe it was your goal. You know what? It, I, it, was, it, was, uh, it was great. I'm, I, I feel I modernized the office, really did some good things there, elected once, been reelected with about 87% of the vote. So, you know, I could have been there like my predecessor for night. She was there for 19 years. I could have kept going. But I had this this crazy thing happen. Tell me. Well, the chief of staff to the current mayor came to me and he said, we want a, a new g- general manager for the uh, Public Utilities Commission. And I'm going, I, I know about their finances mainly because Treasurer also manages all the short-term money and the bonds and all the uh, public debt. But it was like, what did I know about water? It ran downhill, right? So I said, no, I'm not suitable for this position. And he kept bugging me about it and bugging me about it. He said, can we go to lunch? I said, I know what you're going to talk about. No. And then he said, no, at least go to lunch. Then he ended up, of course, talking about it. But then I said, I don't really know. He said, okay, I'm going to send you over some management consultant reports that have been done about the agency. And the agency had trouble. They were under attack from their wholesale customers. They had had four general managers in five years. It was managing water for about two and a half million people. They were under a nine-year rate freeze for sewer rates and seven-year rate freeze for water rates. They were in trouble. And other cities were making a move to try to take some of the power away from this large utility from the city. And I'm like, mm, okay, no, we, I want to step up for that. And then when I looked at the management consulting reports, it wasn't that they didn't have enough scientists and engineers and water people because they did water, power, and sewer. It wasn't that they didn't have enough of the 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 pieces in terms of the science and the, it it was they didn't have financial they needed financial help hence and, your treasury background yes, and they needed political help and they needed management help and I thought it was a very good management for people and I understood money and I understood the policies of the city by that time so crazy me I said sure yeah so because at this point you're understanding that the reason you were being asked wasn't because of your knowledge about water and other public utilities, you were no. being asked because of these other things that you were bringing. More management, finance, 
understanding how th- how you can move the levers of the city. Running large organizations. Right. I mean, this yeah. was going from running an organization of a couple hundred people to running an organization of close to 3,000 people from a, and a budget that was many times the size of the one I was running. So it was, it was kind of wild. So you step into this role. Yeah. And what did you do at that point to get yourself up to speed on the pieces you thought were, you were missing? Well, I, I did. I did two things when I when I became treasurer and when I became head of the PUC. I did a party for the staff. Can't do it out of government money, so in both cases I did it with my own money. And I know it sounds simple and and self serving, but it was the best thing. I know when I did it for treasurer, when I was treasurer, it, it just became this party atmosphere. People would work like heck. Then I'd start to hear the rumblings. Are you going to do your Cinco de Mayo party this year? You know, <laughs> and are you going to do? Are we going to have our big holiday buffet this year? So it was, it was those connections that you start. It, it the most important thing I believe is make the connection with people. Yeah, it sounds like you came in and said relationships first. So because I asked you about knowledge first, and your answer was no, I went relationships first. Yeah, because you knew because you they you knew they knew their stuff. And you knew that you'd be able to ask them enough questions to figure out whether they knew things. I mean, one of the things I always used to say to people would come in and say, well, this is, you know, this is very complicated engineering. And I'd say, you know, I'm not stupid. So if you understand it well enough, you can explain it to me. So that was always, even when I got some people pushing back, like, oh, she doesn't understand water. She doesn't understand engineering. She doesn't understand all these things. But it was relationships. Fast forwarding to today, you're doing work still in water resource space. So as a consultant for urban water, did you find a home and a passion for yourself with the PUC that you just didn't even know you had? Because I can see that you've carried it, you know, way through. So what, what did you discover during this time about yourself? It was a passion for something that is such a vital resource. And I could see how much it meant. And also passion for infrastructure. Building stuff or making stuff work. And the people that do that work. And I just I just fell in love with the folks. Whether it was a plumber, whether it was somebody you know, that was going to go down in a sewer, or whether they were scientists testing the water quality. Or doing conservation. All all very all very cool stuff. So you were with the PUC for about four years? Yes. And so just tell me what you did afterwards. I, I moved on to, I was fortunate to get a fellowship at Harvard uh, right after that. And I did that fellowship for two years. And then I did some work for an engineering firm. And It seems like after you left the um, the Public Utilities Commission that you took some freedom to put together a variety of things that interested you. Mm. So being able to be at Harvard as a fellow, did some advising again, some um, legal advising, some consulting. At this point, was that part of what your thinking was, that I've afforded myself the time in my career that I can now play in the different fields of interest that I have? Or what was going on for you then? Well, I was in that what you would call the water space and had moved into that. Uh, ended up writing a book with a professor at Harvard. Now you could have left the water space, though, too. Why not? There's a lot going on. 
One of the things I find interesting as I hear different stories is while people might be curving through their careers, what are some through lines? And what I'm hearing as a through line in, in your story, and I'm wondering if this if I'm hearing this correctly, isn't necessarily that you from a young age were passionate about healthcare or from a young age were passionate about water or the environment, but that you are passionate about real issues of the day and getting them solved because real lives are at stake in all these things that we're doing. Is that a fair assessment? I I hope it is. I hope it's a fair assessment because I believe in solutions. That was the one thing why we, when we went to write the book, he was saying, well, we could talk about this, this, and this. I said, no, we have to talk about solutions. We have to give people hope. We have to give people case studies that they can replicate. In, in other words, it's one thing to go in and say, a hospital is charging $5 for a slice of bread. And just b- get a big splash in that. You get your picture in the paper, Washington Post, little thing in New York Times. Great. But then what are you going to do about it? So that's why we passed legislation, which would allow state governments and employers to negotiate a more all-inclusive rate with a hospital. So that that's the solution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then same thing with the book. We're not just going to say, here's what the problems are around water and water today, but here's case studies of solutions here's, and let's here's help how people, people find can, solutions. Right. This is how people can fix it. Great. And what are you doing now? I'm working actually a little bit with my old utility. The current general manager of the utility likes to joke, well, you see Susan here because, you know, this problem was around when she was here and she didn't fix it while she was here. So we brought her (laughs) back to fix it. That's his ongoing joke. And I don't mind him telling the joke. Thank you for your story. I've got some um, final questions that I like to ask everybody. Okay. All right. What would you say is the smartest career move that you made, whether intentionally or accidentally? I think one, the treasurer's office, and the other was. Um, I think it was that. I think it was taking that position at the PUC. And why is that? Uh, it opened a whole world for me that I. I'm still very excited about. You know, that's why I'm even I'm even doing work in the Middle East on water um, and because of that door that opened many years ago. Oh, I love that, and especially because I had asked the question of intentionally or accidentally, and I know you shared that story of that you fought that position, right? you know, that, that you had to be so talked into that position, and yet that's the one that yeah, you say yeah, was the smartest. Yeah, was the smartest I, I don't want to use expletives on on your podcast but that's what my first reaction is are you out of your mind you know <laughs> um if you could have one do-over in your career what would it be and why oh wow when i got the opportunity to help found a company from the from day one not after six months or after three months i probably should have taken that chance I should have taken that risk. And I think that was probably more my background than than my my brain. Your background making you feel risk averse? Yes. And what part of your background do you think? Well, I never wanted to be uh I always wanted to be financially independent. Yeah, so that message early on from your from your parents still. Right. What's one piece of career advice that you wish you could have given your younger self? Use your voice and learn learn that you have a voice. Even though I was an elected official and I gave a lot of campaign speeches and 
I don't think I found my voice until I was running the water utility. I realized at that point, even though I'd run a government office, it wasn't until I got to running such a large water utility, I was one of the larger water utilities in the country, that it dawned on me, you've got what it takes. And then I started to find my own voice. So one of the messages I often give to, especially women, is you're just as smart as the guys, and remember you have a voice and use it. So find your own voice early on. Last question. How do you define success? I don't know. I'm still 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 trying to go for it. And maybe maybe I'll maybe I don't know, maybe I could call myself successful. Close. Yeah. Constant work in progress. Yeah, absolutely right. a work in progress. All right. Well, thank you for, for today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Beth. A quick epilogue. We've put a link to Susan's book, Running Out of Water, The Looming Crisis, and Solutions to Conserve Our Most Precious Resource, on our website, careercurves.com. While there, check out past episodes and other resources we've posted to help you in your career. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll subscribe and tell your friends. We really want to grow our audience and we need your help. So please share. That's it for this episode. As always, thanks for listening.